don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello and welcome to the end of the world. And uh, lordy lordy, guess who's 40? It's us. This is episode 40. Our episodage. Uh, episode 40, today we are doing... Uh, what I'm calling Anthropocene Autor Theory number six, the Kelly Reichardt Christmas special part one. Um, I don't think there will be a part two, but today we were talking about maybe maybe we'll go see uh, First Cow when she when that's released and that'll be and then the we have sequel. To, we'll wait until next Christmas <laughs> and, and run yeah. it back. Today we're talking about we were supposed to talk about four films, but we're really only going to talk about three of them, and we'll we'll discuss why that is. But Old Joy from 2006, which just got a Criterion release, Wendy and Lucy from 2008, and Certain Women from 2016, all directed by one Kelly Reichert, and a lot of them co-written or based on something written by the writer Jonathan Raymond. And uh, Certain Women had, was short stories, but not by Jonathan Raymond. No, I, I actually should know who did that. Yeah, it was um, it was like May Maylie something. Um, anyway, Maylie. Yeah, did did you uh, did you happen to watch the like bonus feature thing that's on the Criterion app uh, with the interview with Kelly Reichardt? No, I, I saw that, but I didn't because Old Joy was the last one that I watched, and so I oh, ran out of time. Uh, I see. Yeah, uh, she talks a little bit about her process with uh what's his name jonathan raymond 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 yeah um and she was just talking about how she likes to not be confronted with the blank page and she lets jonathan be confronted with the blank page and and then she you know makes her movies out of his stories you know most of the time i saw another uh, i saw an interview that maybe it was the same one but i watched it on youtube it was with the bfi British Film Institute, and she was saying that I was like the garbage company. <laughs> she uh, she was saying that because after she did uh, River of Grass, her first film back in like the early '90s, she kind of fell out of filmmaking, got disillusioned with it for a long time, and then she uh, came across these stories by Jonathan Raymond, and she said that it was nice to tell someone else's story because every sort of ideologically pure creative writing teacher you'll ever have will say, you know, you have to tell your own story. She was like, I don't necessarily think that's true. I think sometimes it's better to try to tell someone else's story and not have to worry about, you know, things that I think are important that, you know, other people might not care about and instead take up someone else's story and kind of glorify it and do the best job you can at, at telling it. I really like that. Yeah. Um, she was also talking kind of related to that. She was talking about, um, oh, what was it? Well, she was telling a story about how she sort of learned to trust what's on the page with that, that, you know, the stories that this guy writes. She told a story about, you know, uh, Wendy and Lucy prominently features a Walgreens. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she like drove, drove around for a long time, like all over the, uh, region 
looking for a Walgreens to, to shoot at. And it was based on the Walgreens that Jonathan Raymond could like see from his house. Like when he wrote the story, he was like thinking about this Walgreens that's just beyond his like front yard. And, uh, it ended up, they shot at the Walgreens that Jonathan Raymond could see from his front yard, despite her road trip, uh, (laughs) her scouting location road trip. And, uh, so yeah, she's talking about how much she really values kind of the insights of the people around her as opposed to some sort of, you know, uh, selfish storytelling method. Yeah. I have to say that, you know, as someone who worked at a Walgreens for a number of years in, in undergrad, uh, every time I see it, I get like, you know, PS, PSTD, what PTSD flashbacks, PS titties, uh, PS titties. Um, and so when I Pro saw that, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and I, I will say that, like, that is the only Walgreens I've ever seen that has a, a guard on duty like all day long, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which it's a nice touch for the story to give uh, Wendy a kind of, you know, a touchstone that she can kind of come back to. It's almost like a video game checkpoint coming back to yeah. it. Um, yeah. Oh, that just made me think the best video game ever would be Wendy and Lucy. Oh God. Could you imagine? And at They're the end, like it's trying like trying to, trying to find X, the dog the whole time. Press X to abandon your dog. You, you do not have sufficient funds to, uh, yeah, like every interaction is you do not have sufficient funds. Mm-hmm. Please go back to the start. Um, yeah, the goal is like Alaska with Lucy. Yeah, but but it's impossible to get there. And there's just like no last level. It just doesn't exist in the game. <laughs> no matter what you do, you end up on the train alone through your, your <laughs> bum ankle. Uh yeah, so anyway, I, I don't know what order you want to to uh, tackle these in. I think maybe Old Joy, just because it's the first chronologically. Can, yeah, let's go chronological. It's um, the freshest watched, in my mind. I watched them chronologically as well. Cool. And uh, just so, like I said at the beginning, we didn't watch all these. So we left off Meek's cutoff from 2010 because I ran out of time to watch it. And Will said that it was really boring. Well, uh, here's the thing. It was really late. I had just watched uh, Wendy and Lucy I was not primed for a thoughtful cinematic experience, which Meek's cutoff clearly is, but I watched it just so half-assed. I just don't even want to pretend like I have anything to say about it. Though, like I said, I can tell there is uh, that it's a movie worth watching. Uh, one review I saw uh, said at some point the movie transforms from John Ford to Samuel Beckett. Uh, I like that. It's... Yeah, it, and it's it's shot in four by three, which we haven't seen since First Reformed and uh, a good chunk of Grand Budapest Hotel. A very a very uh, strange filmmaking choice in 2019, especially for uh, a western. What is essentially a western about the Oregon Trail? Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know, the first thing that comes to mind is he's like. John Ford, like wide shots. You you can already see the shot I'm talking about of like desert and, you know, covered wagons and endless blue sky. And like it, it, that is a shot uh, made for widescreen cinema. 
And she has those shots, but they're in four by three as if to say, fuck you. Hmm. Uh, so anyway, it's, it's a movie that, that I, I suspect is, is very much worth watching, but I did not give it its due. And, uh, Matt could not, uh, find it in his uh, heart to watch it. And so we're skipping it. Uh, but we, you know, we did watch, it doesn't sound like much to say, Oh, I'll watch three movies in a week, but it gets a little lot. bit daunting sometimes. Yeah. Um, so I think we did pretty good. And, and uh, another thing I heard in that, that Riker interview that I mentioned earlier, she was saying that she is really into, uh, process and like showing process, uh, showing chores and things like that. So yeah. I can imagine in Meek's cutoff, there are a lot of scenes of, of these like pioneer chores of like putting up the tents and stuff. Yep. Um, kind of like in certain women where we get the repeated sort of sequence of feeding the horses and taking them out and all that sort of stuff. Maybe my, that may be my favorite part of that movie though. And the that was, I, I love that movie and I love that, that repeated shot where she's opening the barn door and you see the mountains. Um, yeah, I was, I was a big fan of certain women. Yeah. Uh, sounds weird. Big fan of certain yeah. women. Yeah, uh, not all women, certain women I'm a fan of. So we'll start with old joy, which was her sort of triumphant return. And like we said, it just got a criterion release and it's kind of become her sort of calling card of, you know, uh, coming back into the, at least the indie film scene. Um, it was very well reviewed at the time, kind of become this kind of cult indie art house classic. Uh, and it has all of the sort of hallmarks of that kind of film. So it's very sort of minimal. It's scored by the band Yola Tango. Uh, amazing score. Like my new thing I want to do is just drive around in the like the back country listening to the soundtrack. Uh, and uh, except for cars are bad, so I shouldn't do that. But, um, and it, you know, it only has the, the two central characters. And we sp- well, unless you count the dog, Lucy. And then, you know, you just sort of are in it with these two guys as they're having this very sort of weirdly intimate kind of understated, uh, major experience in their life. Yeah. Um, well, first things first, I, I texted you, uh, about some weird things I was noticing as I was watching old joy, which is you mentioned Yola Tango. The first thing I, I noticed is that, uh, in general, Kelly Reichardt has some overlap with one of my favorite movies ever, which is June Bug uh, by Phil Morrison, who I saw produced, you know, co-produced in uh, at least one of these movies, maybe a couple of them. Uh, and Yola Tango also scored uh, June Bug. And it has that similar feel. It's very small scale, very deliberately paced. Um, but instead of, you know, the Northwest, it's the Southeast. Um, anyway, I also noticed that at the beginning of old joy, you hear these, uh, this political radio show, which Reichardt uses, you know, pretty specifically, but strangely the, I'd recognize his voice anywhere. The radio host, I can't remember his name, but he is featured prominently in the documentary from around the same time, 2006, I want to say, uh, called Jesus camp. 
about fundamentalist, uh, a fundamentalist Christian camp in like North Dakota or something. Um, I don't know this guy's name, but I know it's him. And he's like sort of the voice of reason in Jesus camp. And like I said, Reichardt uses him very differently in, uh, at the beginning and, and towards the end of old joy. So we can talk about that. Yeah. But also maybe the weirdest thing is I'm a big fan of the band. Why, uh, with, uh, Yoni Wolf and they have a song from their most popular album, alopecia called the fall of Mr. Fifths. And there's, I've always thought it was strange at the end of that song. There's an audio clip that I just thought was some sort of like skit or, you know, somehow part of the song. And as I was watching old joy, I realized that that clip is from in the Y song is from old joy, the scene, uh, from the first night where they're camping out and will Oldham's character is telling Kurt, Kurt, uh, yeah, he's telling his theory about, uh, how the universe is a teardrop that's been falling forever. And then he tells his friend, he misses him and he says, he starts apologizing and saying, I'm sorry. I was, I was just being crazy. I feel a lot better now. Um, that audio clip is at the end of this Y song. Uh, it was just a very strange experience. I've listened to that song a hundred times and, uh, just stumbled upon it in watching this movie. This is one of the, like I've been, we talked a little bit about one of them uh, before we started recording, but I've been having a lot of these like weird coincidences and it just makes me uh, react like the, uh, the band-aids, the, the groupies and almost famous where something happens. We're like, it's all happening. (laughs) Um, But yeah, yeah, well, I, no. I tell you another strange coincidence is you were uh, t- telling me about building those bookshelves, mm-hmm. and I, I've been reading uh, "Crossing to Safety" by Wallace Stegner, and I sent you that quote mm-hmm. that said, uh, "You know, the happiest man is the young professor building himself bookcases," there, which I thought was very specific. Yeah, there's a. I don't think we mentioned this, but I like I've taken up trying to build little things. And the first thing I built was this big bookshelf. Uh, and it's like, not, it, it make it sound grander than it is. It's pretty simple. Uh, it's just like big in size. And there is this weird sort of thing where like, if you work in a field that is not physically based, then when you are doing something like that, that's some sort of like hands-on, you know, physical sort of, endeavor like that uh i I don't know if it makes it better but you have all these sorts of like deep thoughts about it whether or not those are you know make any sense or are founded in anything real or whatever but like you're building something and you're like oh this is like you have these like weird visions of like this is what the first man must have felt like (laughs) you know stuff like that it's it's just a complicated sort of grass is always greener feeling probably yeah, it's like if I could just do this all day but then you think about like what that would really be like and my knees would hurt all the time and like stuff like and that. you would you would romanticize you know being <laughs> yeah, able no. to read a book and and get paid for teaching it you know yeah well I, I romanticize about that now so uh, but there's going going back to this uh, radio show that you mentioned because that's a it, it 
it kind of runs through the whole film in old joy uh where mark the uh the other dude's character i can't remember that actor's name daniel Um, london daniel london with the very long face yeah Uh, and he uh he's sort of always listening to this this political show in his car and it's kind of interesting to see how uh politics weaves through reichardt's films in very sort of subtle ways where it's definitely present i think and what i mean is like the politics of a given stretch of time so in old Mm -hmm. joy it's 2006 you know three years into the iraq war george w bush still president all that kind of stuff um and then all the way up to 2016 with certain women um where it's you you have these it's maybe not quite as present but it's definitely you have these this idea of like women being put upon by men in certain different kinds of ways um yeah, I, I, something I I think the movie is suggest certain women is suggesting is it's women, uh, in, it, to some degree, struggling not to succumb to. Uh, it's, I know it's sort of a worn out cliche, but patriarchy, uh, seen especially through that scene with uh, Laura Dern at the beginning and the police officers telling her to you know make make him think you're on his side which shows that they assume she's on their side which proves to be kind of not um totally valid mm-hmm. anyway um but yeah it- I, I your point's taken that it is sort of it's both of the moment but but transcends the moment yeah politically uh, yeah and then like wendy and lucy that's 2008 f- around the financial crisis and it might have been made before that but it lines up pretty well with it of this young woman who every time she turns around she gets you know a door slammed in her face because she doesn't have the the funds or the connections and you know, all this sort of stuff dude how bad did you want to punch that, that fucking kid in the grocery in store the face uh we, uh, we'll get to that at Wendy. the grocery store. We, fuck him. I have a lot to say about Wendy and Lucy, uh, <laughs> but uh, old joy. It's sort of, it, it's a different kind of, of, of vibe in the movie um, because you have these two, it, it's told through these two guys sort of like rekindling their friendship a little bit and having this experience that is sort of like recreational, um, but it's still sort of stressful, at least for uh, Mark because, you know, he has his pregnant wife at home and the whole movie begins with them having a fight about him going on this trip and all that sort of stuff. Well, um, and it starts the very first shot, if I'm not mistaken, is Mark meditating. Yeah. And so the from the bell. get-go, you're just like, oh, what's wrong with him? <laughs> yeah, why, why would you do that? Why would anyone do that? But, you know, these conversations they have, you get this sort of feeling for these things that are kind of smothering to them in their personal lives and what I'm thinking of particularly particularly that kind of ties into the changes in society is when they're talking about uh, Kurt is saying he has these crates of records that he needs to sell and he's going to take them down to the record store and SIDS SIDS yeah. and Mark says well, SIDS is gone like he's it's not there anymore he sells on eBay now and Kurt's like oh well I should I should do that too um, and, and so you get that sort of like death of downtown death of these mm-hmm. independent businesses um 
introduction of the internet, which is a very kind of like effective and mostly efficient, but depersonalized form of, of this sort of thing where before he could go down and talk to Sid and sell the records. Now he's got to like find another way to sell them online or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And also shows kind of that, uh, that sort of another kind of grass is always greener thing of, you know, remember how things used to be and now they're kind of, everything's sort of different, but sort of shittier at the same time. Yeah. Uh, I think one thing Reichardt's really good at is finding little microcosms, um, where, you know, they, Mark and Kurt can have this conversation about a record store not being there anymore. And it ends with Kurt saying end of an era. And we know that they're uh, that the film is actually saying so much more than like this one record store is gone. Yeah. It's a, a, a certain way of doing business is gone and a new way has taken over. Um, and these guys who appear to be in their thirties are kind of, uh, you know, are starting to feel a little bit are, are really just now starting to feel how old they are. I remember at one point Mark says, uh, he, he's just sort of realized how long ago 16 was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think part of what, what the film is doing is, sh- is showing how this new era, whatever it is, is, uh, sort of, uh, making these guys feel old for the first time. And that's, that's a, a thing I can sort of, uh, relate to. Yeah. I think I mean, when you turn 30, you're like, Oh, <laughs> you know, what does this I'm, mean? I'm kind of the old person now. Yeah. Yeah. There's like no way of And I don't know like why 30 became the cutoff for when you're no longer young, but uh, I, I've like recently I'll be talking to somebody about something that I want to try and they'll be like, aren't you a little old for that? Uh, I was like, Hey, what about this haircut? And Lava will be like, are you too old to have that haircut? Yeah. It's, dude, I want to, I want to be able to do the thing where you wear, a hoodie with a blue jean jacket over it. Like a truck driver? Like, no, no. Like cool <laughs> no. young people. It's like the coolest uh, fashion thing, I think. But it's like. Or like Adidas boosts. Like I feel like if I wore some cool Adidas, I would look like a tool. Or those pants, like like the khaki colored pants that have like the stretchy things at the ankle. Oh, God. Yeah. I, yeah. Those are so fucking cool. But I can't. But not wear if those. you wear I'm them. Thirty-three years old. They're cool unless You're, you wear them, and then they're not cool anymore. Right? What well, you can't? Well, is what I'm saying is like you can't wear that stuff unless you're young or famous. Yeah, or like in really good shape. <laughs> Which I'm, I don't know. I, I if if I saw someone, I don't care how good a shape they're in, you can tell by someone's hands how old they are. You know what I'm saying? Like even I even guess. the best. It, it, like even someone who's in the best shape and they're 50, you look at their hands, they're like, you know, they're the hands of a 50 year old. The hands of God. Uh, no, yeah, that's, <clears throat> I'll keep that in mind. Start looking at people's hands. Um, Just look at, uh, look at like, uh, JK uh, Simmons. Eminem's hands. You Eminem's know what I'm saying? Hands. He's like in his mid to late forties now and he still dresses like a fucking moron. And, 
you look at his hands, he looks like an old man. I don't know. I, I don't know if you could see his hands because he 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 would either be like flipping them around to do like rap hands, or he'd be grabbing on his dick. I remember like what there's a live performance. This was like years ago when I was like a teenager, and he's on MTV, and he he's wearing he's got no shirt on, and he's got on like Adidas track pants that are like down. Um, you know, pulled down and his boxers are showing and that sort of stuff. And the whole time he's rapping, he has his, his non mic hand like on his dick and every now and then he'll like pick it up and like, like do some like weird, like hand whip thing. And then he'll put it right back on his dick. And I was like, man, he's really like latched onto that thing. He's like a seven year old sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, old joy. <laughs> That's does, some old joy does, for you. <laughs> there's the oldest joy. Just it's a uh, what is it? Uh, love is just worn out. Joy is what they say at the end. Yeah. Um, but but it, I do I do think it it, it uh, comments on aging and to you know what it means to feel old. Uh, like the first time you feel old. Um, there, there's this, it's kind of hard to watch at the very beginning that, uh, conversation between Mark and his uh, girlfriend or wife. I can't remember. Um, it's just this, uh, petty, predictable, you know, he wants to go camping with his friend. She's pregnant. And so there's this little, you know, there's tension there and it's like, just sort of makes me cringe. For yeah, some reason, and it kind of kind of comes up later on in certain women a little bit too. I think is this idea of like in relationships, especially in these like really long term committed relationships. There's that thing where like if a woman tells you no, she becomes the bad guy, kind of in that moment. And that's what his his girlfriend or wife says of like you know you're gonna go, and you know it's I'm supposed to be like angry or tell tell you not to, but it's not gonna change anything, and then I'll be the bad guy. And so, like you said, it's a very sort of like predictable thing of like relationships are, are hard and it takes, you know, a lot of these kinds of shitty little predictable conversations <laughs> over yeah. long periods of time. Yeah. So, so they go camping or they decide to go camping and it seems like mostly Kurt is just kind of smoking pot and you're, you're kind of not sure just, you, you know, he's a little unconventional, but you're not sure if this guy's like a full fledged fuck up or just kind of eccentric. And they, they start to get lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at least I started to suspect like, Oh, maybe this guy's like a real weirdo, you know? But then that it doesn't really play out. No, and the being lost, it's like you could read it as just like he's just in that sense he's sort of like a fuck up and like misguided them or whatever, or like take the sweet version of like maybe he did it on purpose so they could spend more time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that sort of thing. But um, he's, he tells them something. He's like uh, when they when they go to the diner the next day after they've camped, he says like, oh he asked the waitress and she says, you're like 10 miles away. And he's like, see, I told you. And his friend Mark says, I never, I never doubted you. It wasn't like, you know, I didn't think it was a big deal. 
sort of thing. Yeah. And there's a lot of like interactions like that of them just being like, like, Oh, it's okay. It's okay, buddy. Like that sort of thing. Um, and it, I, that's one thing that I, th- I read a little bit about the movie before I watched it of this sort of interesting take, uh, or sort of realistic kind of take on, on masculinity and sort of these, these, uh, relationships between men. And that it definitely plays out in the film where it's that weird combination of like sincerity and sort of detachment and sort of like not wanting to get too serious, um, but like in the, the best encapsulation of this is when uh, that first night, uh, the scene you mentioned earlier of Kurt kind of breaking down by the fire and he, he's like, he's like, I miss you really bad, man. And he's like crying and, and very emotional. And that's, you know, the scene where he's like, oh, I was just, you know, I was acting crazy or whatever. And it's a very sort of classic thing of like, oh, you know, I was just being stupid. It's just, don't worry about it, man. I was just being crazy when like. 20 seconds ago he was kind of pouring his heart out and like talking about how sort of lonely he is even though he seems to have the and that's one thing i want to say is like i think Riker deserves some kudos for taking what is basically a very old kind of archetypal story of the friend who got his shit together and the friend who's still kind of hanging loose uh we have mark who's like got the job i think he's like a shop teacher seems like um and he's got the the pregnant girlfriend. He's going to have a kid. He's got a house. And Kurt is still blowing in the wind, you know, going to different hot springs and trying to become a cook at a hot spring in Arizona and all this sort of stuff. Um, living out of his van, <laughs> that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that story, even though we've seen it a million times, doesn't really get it isn't really stale in the way that it's presented in this movie. No, because it's it's presented so ultra realistically, but also sort of mythologically. You know, it's just at first glance, it's like looks like it could be a documentary, but then through mostly through Kurt's kind of speeches, you realize that there's there's quite a bit more uh, going on beneath the surface than meets the eye. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know everything, you know, all that that is. This is a movie that I can. Uh, I can say I think uh, insists that you watch multiple times because uh, there's first, so first of all it's so short yeah and, and second of all there's just even though it's so short there's a lot of sort of connections Reichart you know makes you make you really have to pay attention especially to the things Kurt is saying mm-hmm. to find connections between like what's happening in this movie and and these weird seemingly weird stories Kurt is telling yeah and in sort of case in point of that is the sort of cli- climax climatic scene um, where it's uh, when Kurt is is rubbing Mark's shoulders while he's like in the hot spring tub, which I have to say, like I want to find a hot spring like that. That looks like the coolest thing. It's if a I real just, place. Like, if I, I could just drive it. Oh, I know, but I wish one I, was like nearby. I, it, in the credits, it said, uh, it's called like Bagby hot springs. I think and so it said, cool. uh, Bagby hot springs does not allow alcohol or nudity. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the, the sort of climax to this, journey the sort of miniature journey they've been on uh is you know he's rubbing his shoulders and they have this 
sort of weird kind of silent moment of connection and there's this weird the, the, the thing where like you see mark's hand like slipping into the water and there's like kind of a hint of it being sexualized like i don't know like I, I read it as just sort of a hint of it enough to make you think about it enough to sort of make it ambiguous but not exactly like we're supposed to be thinking it's possible and and that's it yeah and even then it's like it's not it's not presented in any sort of like skeevy way. It's just sort of this sort of weird or not weird, the sort of quick sort of passionate connection, whether it's sexual or not. And then they go back to their normal lives. Well, and part of it, you know, thinking about this movie when it was done, part of it to me seemed a little broke back mountainish. Uh, and I don't mean that as, as a joke. Unfortunately, I have to explain myself that it's <laughs> not a joke to, compare it to that movie which is i I think i probably said this on the show before i think it's a fucking masterpiece beautiful Um, beautiful film great love story like i know that it there are all the jokes uh, that are made about it like you're saying but if you want like a real passionate love story that you can't do much better than that movie dude we should we should do that movie uh i think we could justify it yeah and we should read uh uh there's a in the spirit of disobedience there's a great commentary on that movie that really made me see it in a new light and it's i'm a huge fan anyway um i think old joy you know in some ways felt a little similar in the back rub scene it's 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 like these guys felt like they had to drive you know however long and hike however long to get up in the mountains and this obscure hot springs you know so that this dude could rub his shoulders yeah you know what i'm saying yeah uh, and i don't know if that's you know i don't know if that's there all the way but uh that thought crossed my mind at least yeah it's just and a lot of that uh, is sort of like i was saying earlier founded in this idea of sort of how men interact with each other and how they're expected to interact with each other and if you're a guy who is overly affectionate or like huggy to your other guy friends there it's like 100% guaranteed that they'll be like oh that's a little weird you're like they'll mm-hmm. say to each other like why, why why does he like to hug people so much <laughs> like that that kind of thing um and there's nothing wrong with it it's just sort of that it's been indoctrinated and beaten to your skull since you were a little boy of like oh you gay you queer what, huh mm-hmm. um and so it to have a moment like that of this kind of physical connection it's like it's something that you think of like, this needs to be kept very secret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but you also see to me easily the most fascinating part of this movie is that you kind of, the, you think at the beginning that this is Mark's story. Mm-hmm. This is Mark's movie. And by the end, I'm not so convinced it is. Um, by the end, it sort of seems like Kurtz um, because he's told these stories and and then you see him. You know, he's told, this, told the story about uh, – I can't remember what he does to the person. Oh, the old man? The, what does he do to the old man? He, where he like, like almost he, hits him with his bike or does hit him with his bike. 
and right. and he doesn't turn around or apologize or anything because he thinks I'm never going to see this guy again. Yeah. But then he sees him like three or four more times <laughs> yeah. in the next like two hours. Um, and the Jesus Christ superstar. Right. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says Jesus Christ, and then the woman says, uh, the Indian woman says, superstar, superstar. And then he he tells the story about having seen that woman in a dream. And she's the one who tells him that sorrow is just worn out joy. Um, but then you see Kurt at the end of the film and someone asks him for change and he says, sorry. And he sort of walks away and you can tell his conscience is like weighing on him. He goes back and he ends up giving this guy, you know, a little bit of change. And, I don't know. There's, I think what intrigues me so much about this movie is that I don't quite understand it. Um, but I can tell, you know, we've sort of talked about this feeling that some movies give you where when you don't quite get it, but you can tell that there really is something cool and meaningful to get. Um, that's kind of where I'm at with this. Like there's something very cool going on here and I can't quite put it all together. Yeah. And it has that, that sort of, that other kind of uh, worn out narrative of going to the woods as an escape. That's Mark's whole thing of when he answers the phone at the beginning, he's like, Oh, I could definitely use some woods time to get away from all of his responsibilities. Um, and it was, it was really interesting though, as they were driving out there, Kurt says there's no difference between yeah, yeah. the city and the forest. It's, like it's all one right? big thing. Uh, and then, and then I, I really, I really think when they're coming back, there's such an abrupt, there's like three abrupt cuts from like them driving through the mountains and the woods to like kind of rural interstate and then to like the city neon everywhere. And, and it, it, to me, it feels like that sort of visual rhetoric is arguing against what Kurt said. Like, no, there is a difference between these places. And Kurt's kind of like a, the way he's presented is sort of like a lost soul. Uh, you know, maybe not a lost soul, but like someone who has, seems to have it all kind of figured out. And he tells these stories about these drum circles and people jumping over the bonfires and how wonderful it is. But then at the end, you see he has kind of nowhere to go sort of no one to be with that sort of thing. Uh, whereas Mark, even though his life is extremely stressful and he has a kid on the way and all that sort of stuff, he goes home to his girlfriend and to his bed and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, not saying one of those is better than the other, but it, it, the movie does a good job of showing how they both can leave one feeling kind of unfulfilled in different kinds of ways. Yeah, because when Kurt is telling the story about that drum circle and, uh, you know, he he's sure to mention there's all these like beautiful women there and you can see Mark is seriously kind of thinking about it and and kind of upset that he's missed out on it. Mm -hmm. And like now that's all boiled down to, to FOMO, fear <laughs> of missing out, uh, which it's become kind of a kind of a meme but it's a it's a real thing and it, it, i think it, it given how much you one buys into it you could fuck up your life pretty severely i think 
Um, yeah, so. yeah. It's uh, it's sort of trivialized with that phrase, you know, fear of missing out. But it's really this. It's really this problem of. Uh, in a way, it's almost like entitlement, mm-hmm. where where everyone sort of thinks that they're entitled. I, I think there's probably a way to blame this on like mass media where s- stories are so hyper available and we've grown up with all these images to where we think we kind of deserve to experience everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, we feel like we're missing out if we don't live like every single life that there is. Um, and I, and I say this from personal experience. I'm not like condemning it. I, I, I think I understand that, uh, pretty well where, you know, life, a, a single life is so particular, so specific that if you've grown up with all these images of, you know, different kinds of life and lives to just live your single particular human life seems like settling for for something lesser than you know mm-hmm. and uh, something about this film uh too that that kind of connected to talking about sort of being too uh not so young anymore men in our early 30s uh mm-hmm. we're right on that sort of tipping point between it, it's kind of like I don't know, like the fall of life, I guess. <laughs> the, you know, the leaves are starting to change a little bit, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> and, and I, I think there's probably some like 50, 60-year-olds who would uh, who would take issue who, who with that. Who would be like, oh, no, I'm... A, well, what, whatever you think you're is, in the fall? <laughs> we're in the, the dog days of life. Uh, and so watching this film has that sort of like extra impact of like, when you're younger and you like don't see a friend for a long time, it's like, oh that's cool. I got to see them. We got to hang out. They're going to go back to doing whatever. And then you get a little bit older and like you go even longer without seeing people that you once thought of as like real close friends and people start getting married and having kids and people start dying. And and it's, you sort of like realize like, okay, now I'm kind of, I'm in the shit now. Uh, right. Like the, the roller coaster is over the hill and now I just got to, you know, ride this thing out. And so, um, get, watching this film and watching these two guys are sort of like if I was 16 or something and watching this film I'd be like these are two adults that got like shit figured out but now I'm like oh I totally get this kind of feeling of being even though you have certain connections you kind of feel unmoored or like unsure insecure of certain things I, I don't know just sort of had that kind of connection to it that I appreciated. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a rare, um, it, it, like you said, it's kind of, kind of, you know, an archetypal, almost cliche, but it's presented in a, in a fresh way, um, to where it feels kind of like a rare perspective to, to see in a film, which is, um, you know, these, these, these guys in, I guess they're in Oregon, and they're not super, neither one of them is super successful. That's something I, I really 
notice in a lot of movies is just how successful everyone is all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just not how life is. No. Um, and, and this is, these are just two average guys. You know, one of them has made some concessions and, um, you know, kind of has this steady sort of normal life. One of them has not done that. And, but they're still in the same world, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's just, it's just nice. And it's nice the same way I mentioned June bug earlier, this movie, old joy and June bug are nice in the same way in that they put on film entire sort of classes and, and entire worldviews that are not, uh, often presented in film. And, and they show places that are not often shown in film, which is just like rural America. Yeah. You know, I think starting from that point, it kind of gives us a good, a good way to transition into Wendy and Lucy. Uh, if we're talking about people kind of on the margins and in that same interview, that BFI interview with Riker that I was talking about earlier, uh, she talks about how she likes the creating these films with these characters that don't really have a safety net. Um, so, you know, one mistake can kind of doom them to this kind of, uh, you know, Sisyphean existence. Um, and in that, the description for the video, the BFI video, whoever posted it wrote she, that she writes stories in which characters have to make only one mistake to see themselves sunk. And that's kind of true to different extents, but I think with Wendy and Lucy, it's, kind of 100% true and you see this kind of precarious existence that that Wendy is experiencing and how this one I hesitate even to call it a mistake this one decision uh, kind of fucks all that up for her even though you know you, you can sort of piece it together and say that it's not just this one thing but this one thing that happens kind of has this uh, you know, blown out of proportion effect that really kind of changes the path of her life in a major way. Yeah. And it all comes back to that douchebag dude we mentioned earlier, God. Uh, proudly sporting his cross necklace. And we see he's not even probably not even out of high school. You know, he, someone, I guess his mom picks him up from the grocery store job. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, Precarious is a very good word to use to describe Wendy's situation. Um, and, and by the end of the movie, you see she's, she's lost her dog or she's, you know, her dog's gone, not with her. Her car is gone. And, and you're sort of left to ask, like, who took these things from her? You know, like, how does this happen? How does she pull into this Walgreens and then two days later she doesn't have a car or a dog and she's a vagabond basically right and it's because of a you know what can't be more than two or three dollars can of dog food yeah it's uh, let me read you something because after watching Wendy and Lucy I was like upset and I you uh, said lava just like cried uh, yeah, out. lava my wife um at the end of the movie when wendy leaves lucy so she can have a better life with the foster dog 
parent person. Lava just like bawling her eyes out. Um, and it, it wasn't because, I mean, it was kind of because it's a dog and we're big dog people. Uh, but it was because of just the systematic, just horseshit that led to this conclusion, right? That like Wendy right. had no control. The suggestion over. is like life is impossible. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know if you've ever, I had a, a similar experience with Game of Thrones and this is kind of, I, I don't think you've watched it. I haven't. Um, no. But I was like, a. I read the books and then hate watched the show in a lot of ways. But there's a character who people who have listened to Game of Thrones know what I'm talking about, Hodor, and it's revealed kind of late in the show that his whole life has been predetermined kind of by the whims of the people who were in power, and one of them has these kind of magic powers. And because he used the magic powers to try to save himself and this group he's with, he kind of ruined this guy's whole life through like time travel means. And so this guy's whole existence was leading up to this point where he had to save this other character. Uh, and I don't know what it was, but like, I, it was, I don't know if it was like where I was in my life at that point or what was going on the weather. But after that episode, I like cried, like legitimately <laughs> like cried. And I was like, it's, I was like, it's so unfair. Like he ne- <laughs> he never had a chance. Like it was just it, like, those are the kinds of stories that really kind of, uh, fuck with my head the most. But Wendy and Lucy kind of feels like that because all Wendy's trying to do is get from Fort Wayne, Indiana to Alaska to work in the canneries and she has her money and her dog and she's doing pretty well until she gets to this, this town in Oregon. Um, and you know, like we were talking about, it all kind of falls apart, but this is what I wrote. And I was kind of debating whether or not I wanted to pretend like I didn't write this and that I was like going off the cuff, <laughs> but it, I'll just, I'll just read it. And this is a note I wrote on my phone after I watched the movie. It says, what, ma- what makes Wendy's interaction with the shithead grocery clerk so fucking heartbreaking is that it encapsulates so much of what I hate to see in the world and that makes me so depressed so often. The misplaced righteousness, the selective accountability, the lack of any awareness that maybe we are all in this together and it is not working out for almost any of us. Exxon, BP, and the big Wall Street banks can get off with a relative slap on the wrist for ruining the world. But if Wendy doesn't get booked for stealing a couple of bucks worth of dog food, then it is some kind of cosmic miscarriage of justice. Fuck that shit. Yeah, and you can sort of see on that character's face, the the kid at the grocery store, you can sort of see the the conviction that he delivers this indictment of Wendy with, you know, oh, there there has to be rules as as an expression of fear. As if to say, if this woman gets away with stealing dog food, there is no order in the universe. Where does it all end? You know? It'll be chaos. Right. Dogs and cats living together. <laughs> um, and, and you know, that's like I said, Reichardt's really good at finding these very small dynamics, very particular dynamics uh, that say so much. Here's this, first of all, you know, male, young Christian who still lives with his parents, can't even drive to work, um, with, uh, to some degree, the authority to uh, 
to set in motion the process that changes Wendy's life. I was, you know, I wanted to say ruins her life, but ruins a part of her life. Um, but you see, you see, it's this uh, this rigid understanding, like you, like you're sort of getting at. There's this rigid, uh, misplaced, rigid understanding of like what what the law is for. Um, yeah, it's the the whole like spirit versus the letter type thing, and this kid definitely wants to follow to a T the letter, the letter of the law. Yeah. And it, one of the more interesting parts of the the movie is when he's making his case to his boss. Yeah. And his boss is kind of like has this look on his face of like, do I do this? Like, is, yeah, is yeah. He right? You you get the feeling that had the boss caught her. He would have been like, uh, "Will you just leave?" You know. Yeah. But because this kid is like clearly regurgitating things that probably the boss himself has said, the boss feels pressure to uphold these kind of on paper good standards. Yeah. yeah He's but- like, there there have to be consequences, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and the, from there on, the whole film takes on a very like. Kafka-esque kind of tone where it's Lucy or not Lucy it's Wendy going through all of these really unnecessary trials maybe except for the car the car is the one where it's like maybe you should have had it looked at before or whatever Um, but even then it's like the fact that she's so reliant on the ownership of this car is just another kind of fucked up thing Um, but you know she you see her Every time, unless it's the security guard outside the Walgreens, literally everyone is sort of telling her why she can't do what she's trying to do. Yeah, and and you you kind of see several examples of what Wendy is trying not to be. You know, the the people who she encounters who have these sort of steady positions. Um are not enviable. You know, the, the guy at Walgreens, he just stands there all fucking day. Yeah. Um, there's a, who else? Oh, the, the car, uh, the auto repair shop guy, Will Patton, I believe is that actor's name who, I mean, how strange is it that yeah. coach, coach Yost is there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that guy was a fucking Armageddon. What's he doing? And he's in uh, Meek's cutoff as well. And not only that, but he's really good in it. Yeah. As this. Yeah, he's he, this weird, thing. this weird kind of uh, eccentric auto repair shop owner. Uh, anyway, you see the kind of ridiculousness of these people who are, you know, so-called normal people holding down in these forty-hour-a-week positions, and so any sort of. Uh, um, skepticism you might have of Wendy and her troubadour life, uh, I think is counterbalanced through the ridiculousness of these, of these so-called normal hardworking people. Yeah. And kind of in contrast to the, uh, the kind of counter culture train people, the sort of vagabond community that 
uh, you see Lucy with earlier in the movie. Mm-hmm. Lucy, Wendy, I keep, I'm going to keep confusing them. Wendy and Lucy, really. Uh, and you get Will Oldham again playing Icky. Yeah. Uh, kind of like ranting about uh, driving this earth mover off a cliff in Alaska because he didn't know how to stop it. Um, which is a, it, that was a good cameo by him. Um, yeah, he nailed it. But you get this sort of uh, interesting look of kind of the border between these two ways of life of, you know, riding the rails and being kind of a uh, vagabond's only word I can think of to keep using um, versus the sort of established form of life that she's kind of leaving. And it seems like she has some kind of connection to because she makes that call after the car stops or the car won't start. So she calls yeah. someone. I, I think it's implied that it's her sister and her and uh, her brother-in-law, her sister's husband. Yeah, and so he, you know, she she has like to you know call back home to the people that are more kind of established and sort of you know not in danger of losing everything. Um, so you get this kind of the whole movie is this kind of tightrope walk for uh, Wendy, and then by the end of it, she kind of through all of these things that happen kind of falls off and ends up with, you know, her last shot is to hop this train to Alaska and work at the canneries and then maybe come back and get Lucy or, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah. And, and we don't leave the movie with much hope that she's actually coming back for Lucy. Mm -hmm. I mean, she doesn't seem to be able to, she doesn't seem free to roam about. And just that, that fucking kid in the grocery store who says during just, that whole The rest scene, of the podcast, let's just talk about that fucking kid. <laughs> that he just, is the kid in First Reformed. Oh, God, In that yes. uh, you know, youth group or whatever. Those are Christians can't be successful. He, he says, uh, if you can't afford dog food, then you shouldn't have a dog. Yeah. Which, you know, again, if you, on the face of it, makes a lot of sense. But this is not that. Like, this is not that scenario. Yeah. Um, this is her, it's just like the, the weird thing. It's like her trying to save money, I guess, by stealing a couple of cans of, of, uh, Imes. Yeah. Which is not maybe the most ethical thing to do, but at the same time, it's not going to hurt literally anyone. Yeah. So yeah, he did. The kid just can't really understand. Uh, he, he just, by his position in life, cannot understand Wendy's position. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, that's that's why I wanted to teach literature, <laughs> is to try to instill some kind of empathy. Uh, doesn't always work out, but something that would have helped that, that kid, or at least would have helped Wendy in that situation immensely, is like, just imagine what it's like to be in that situation and not jerking off in your bedroom while your parents are sleeping. <laughs> yeah. Uh, empathy is, uh, you know, such a cliche in terms of literature and, and film and storytelling of any kind. Yeah. It, but it's earned, it's earned its status as such. It is like, uh, you know, it's one of those cliches that, that I wish would sort of, come back to the forefront you know it, so much of the, of the time now it seems like people are reading literature and watching movies 
uh, for some sort of novelty. You know, it's like, like we sort of said when we talked about Fight Club, the highest compliment a certain type of person will give a movie is like how fucked up it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when, when really, uh, I do think that that sort of worn out cliche of empathy is, is kind of the point. Uh, even though it may instill that, that uh, FOMO we talked about, uh, I'd, I'd say empathy with FOMO is better than no empathy without FOMO. Yeah, empathy plus FOMO plus time equals comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but something- you know what the most important thing about comedy is? What? Timing. <laughs> God. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I just want to mention something that, that comes up and it, it links Wendy and Lucy and certain women together. Old Joy, not quite as much, is that both in Wendy and Lucy and in certain women, you have pretty much a complete lack of uh non-diegetic music Mm -hmm. um so you you just get the sounds of what's happening around and certain women especially you get the the train going through town a lot yeah i saw the the store the jonathan raymond story it's based on is called train choir that's wendy and lucy oh which which one are you talking about Oh, I was talking about both of them. Uh, both of those films don't have a soundtrack, really. Oh. In certain women, at the very end, music comes in. But up until then, nothing. Yeah. Um, which I, I just thought was really kind of fascinating because you think of Old Joy, you know, Yola Tango doing the soundtrack mm-hmm. and it's very yeah. prominent and it's, you know, beautiful and well used. And then you get Wendy and Lucy and certain women where there's basically no music Wendy and Lucy, especially I don't, I don't think there's any that I can remember. Yeah. Not that I can recall either. And then in certain women just at the end, it kind of comes in and up until then you just get the sounds of what's happening in the scene and like mm-hmm. of the town and, and of the horses and all that sort of stuff. Or if like the, the character um, can't remember her name who takes care of the horses, uh, Jamie, um, has the radio on and you hear that. Yeah. And, and Laura Dern's character turns on the radio in that awkward scene where her client starts crying. Yeah. Jared Harris. Yeah. Um, so uh, we, we can kind of come back to Wendy and Lucy and, and these other ones if we want, but I guess we can go ahead and talk about certain women, which is a uh, kind of, I don't know, like we were talking about the way it looks, but I think it's kind of her most polished film in certain ways. It's very, it's very sure handed. Uh, one thing I noticed just about all of her movies to me, it, it suggests very confident filmmaking when you can make a movie with, you know, not a lot of, without a lot of music mm-hmm. and without a lot of camera movement and still keep people interested and entertained um, and intrigued. And she does that, especially in certain women where, I mean, there's most of the shots are, um, 
you know, there's, there's no like, there's certainly no action sequences to speak of. Uh, and yet you just really care about what happens. I, I especially liked the final, uh, story with, uh, the one Kristen Stewart mm-hmm. is in, um, yeah. And there's the, the cinematography we were talking about a little bit. It's just beautiful and a little sort of retro, sort of grainy, uh, grainier than it has to be in 2016. Yeah. Uh, it's just, uh, the, the shots where, what's the character's name who works with the horses? Jamie. Jamie, where she keeps opening the barn doors and you see the mountains and the snow and it's just, uh, and it, and it's all in Montana and maybe I have a personal connection. I've spent quite a bit of time, uh, used to spend some time in Montana and, uh, specifically Billings, which is where they are uh, at the beginning of the movie. And, uh, yeah, just a beautiful look to this film. Yeah. And it's worth mentioning that this was the first film, uh, of Reichert's, early starting with old joy where she goes outside of Oregon. So all the other films that we've talked about were set in Oregon, uh, you know, in different kinds of places. And so with this one, she shifts that and tells a story set in Montana. And she uses that, I think to the best of her ability. Whereas in Oregon, we get a lot of the natural beauty of that state uh, in like old joy or even in like night moves, which we're not talking, we've talked about before, but you know, you get a lot of the kind of natural beauty in the, the forests and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, with certain women in Montana, you get that, you know, feeling of big sky country, like when the door opens and you see the mountains or mm-hmm. uh, in the Michelle Williams portion where they're driving kind of you know out in the country somewhere and you see the mountains off in the distance or you're in albert's house the old man who's kind of his memory starting to slip a little bit and he has Mm -hmm. that big picture window in his living room yeah yeah it's just beautiful like he can see for like miles yeah like i said having spent some time in montana you you sort of hear the cliche in in books and stuff where you can see tomorrow's storm like that is so real you can like see the bad weather coming because the sky is so fucking huge uh, or, you know, unobstructed, I guess is the more accurate term. Uh, But yeah, it's a, it's a different, it's a different sort of beauty. And of course, Oregon is just so lush with, you know, with trees uh, that it's a very different space to film. Especially the spaces she's filming in uh, Old Joy, you know, in the woods. It's a very, very different thing. Yeah. But in certain women, I was kind of, I didn't expect the film to be kind of segmented like it is. And it sort of reminds me of, uh, maybe you have seen these movies, they're not that great, but like, I Love You, New York, or... Paris Jatiam, or however you would say it. <laughs> yeah, those sort of Paris, like love you, yeah. uh, segmented movies where like different directors. And it, it doesn't feel like that. It's way better than those movies. But yeah. I didn't expect it to have these storylines that were kind of separate and kind of only connected by the place. 
and by their focus on these these women, these central characters. Um, yeah, it, it reminded really well me done. of a movie by Rebecca Miller called Personal Velocity. Um, that was just did that sort of three three story, you know, separate short story sort of tangentially connected. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of a Winesburg, Ohio sort of deal where it's there are, you know, they're all connected by the place, but each story can stand alone. Yeah. And so you get like very little overlap, which I think is it's a good show of kind of restraint where you don't have some big event that brings all the characters together or like it doesn't turn out that like Kristen Stewart's character is Laura Dern's daughter or whatever. Uh, yeah, I, I there's they, no like crash sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. And the, the closest you get to anything like that is when uh, Jamie and that actress's name just to. Lily Gladstone. I just want to yeah. mention her name because yeah. she's excellent yeah. in this movie. Um, but she's in the law office and you see Laura Dern's character walk in and like go upstairs to her office. And that's really the only time you get any kind of connection between the different mm-hmm. storylines. And um, it's, and it's uh, basically meaningless. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just three really good stories about these women and, complicated relationships that they that they have at least in two of the cases with men or i guess you know uh michelle williams's character's husband is another connection because he's was having an affair with laura dern's character yeah yeah Um, but again it's not it's not really made too too big of a deal Um, and it's never yeah it's never explained yeah but just the the way the way that this film kind of explores loneliness I think is awesome because you have, like we said, this landscape that is enormous. And then on top of that, this feeling of loneliness that kind of is exacerbated by these huge skies and all that. Um, And, you know, it takes different forms with each of the three women uh, and with some of the other characters as well. But I just think that it's sort of, it's a theme you see through all of her films, Wendy and Lucy and an old joy, this kind of feeling of, lack of connection or being alone or like longing for a connection, that sort of thing. One of the many themes she seems to keep coming back to. There's a, a strange thing I noticed about certain women um, that, that I don't know if it's just a coincidence or if it's something meaningful. Um, and that's the movie starts Put put on your your sort of film historian glasses as I tell the story and see if you can guess which movie I'm talking about. Putting it's, them on now. Say what? I said putting them on now. Okay. It starts with a woman in the middle of the day having a sort of lover's rendezvous in a hotel, an illicit affair, and then returning to the office. Can you think of like a canonical American film where that happens? Like the very first shot in both of these movies is in a hotel and then it transitions from the hotel to the office of the woman. I cannot think of it. Psycho Hitchcock. 
Oh. Which okay. is weird, right? A little bit. I don't like I said, I don't know if that's just a coincidence or if there is some sort of, you know, kind of you know, it seems like something like Laura Mulvey would like write about, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Something deep seated in there. Yeah, I I I haven't seen Psycho in a long time. I don't I don't remember that super well. Yeah, it just starts with like the camera zooming in on one you know uh, into one window uh of this giant hotel or apartment, I'm not sure. And you see Marion uh, scandalously clad in her undergarments. Um, I wonder if that's kind of the beginning of the horror movie trope that like, if you're a sinful woman, you'll get murdered. <laughs> Maybe. And, and we take pleasure in that. We're like, yeah, whore. Uh, <laughs> but that, you know, that doesn't really, or it doesn't happen at all in this film. And it, I just want to say like, I, I like all these uh, three kind of strands of the story, but the, the Laura Dern one, with a uh, Jared Harris and I, I really love Jared Harris as an, he's one of the actors that I kind of like whenever I see he's in something, I'm like, Oh yeah, I'll watch that. He was great in Mad Men. He's great in Chernobyl. Like everything I've seen him in, um, to see him here playing this kind of like, uh, you know, Montana dickhead, <laughs> like idiot asshole guy. Um, it was really <laughs> awesome. And, and I just love how, and, you know, other people that I've seen, like, writing about this movie have said this, but, like, a big part of that storyline is showing how Laura Dern, this very competent woman, she even says at one point, like, I wish I was a man and I could tell somebody, explain the law to somebody, and they would just say, okay. Um, how restful that would yeah, how be. How restful. Uh, and she's sort of, like, drug around and, like, given all this bullshit by this guy who's just an idiot, more or less. And he has brain damage, so that's part of it. But he's also just kind of an idiot, <laughs> and uh, you know, holds holds her hostage, and then like, it's like pretend that I'm holding you at gunpoint while I sneak out the back. And the first thing she does is go out and tell the cops that he's out back. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, it's just sort of. That but aren't, aren't we supposed to think though that he actually did get screwed by this company? That's the thing. It's like. And I think that's why she keeps she like visits him in prison at the end because she knows kind of deep down that like even though she did all she could as his like legal representation, given how the system is constructed, he was just sort of fucked from the get go. Like right. he was just and she to position. me it seems like she experiences this guilt and conflict for kind of being on the wrong side of this. There's, uh, when she's talking to the police officers before this weird sort of hostage negotiation thing, you know, they say, make it seem like you're on his side. When, of course, she's his lawyer. Mm -hmm. How can these police officers so confidently assume that she's not uh, on his side? You know, why would yeah. that be something she has to fake? Um and so I, I really think we're supposed to view those police officers as these sort of, you know, this like boys club. Uh, and they offer her this protection. You know, they put on this this vest, this bulletproof vest. Uh, what, but what she, she had shot she, you in the face. 
<laughs> that was a risk we were willing to take. Uh, yeah, I, I really think there's a lot going on in that short scene where, and she's the one that, you know, ends up having to take the risk and they're just like, yeah, go in there to this hostage situation. Um, mm-hmm. it, but yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, and I was just saying like, I, I think that if there's any, anyone kind of close to a, a kind of windy character in this film, it is Jared Harris's character, uh, whose name escapes me. Um, because he's this, you know, very talented carpenter, the, the sheriff or whatever is like, you should see what he did in my study. You can't tell where the old wood ends and the new wood begins. And then the the other guy's response was that was before he fell on his head. (laughs) It's like they completely dismiss him kind of as a person now. Um, but you know, because he has this accident and he doesn't understand how the law works and he takes this payment and because he takes the payment, he like basically gives up his right to sue. Um, mm-hmm. he kind of loses everything and his wife leaves him and he has nothing and can't pay his mortgage and all that kind of stuff. Um, but at the same time, he's kind of the comedic, the comic relief of, of the movie in a lot of ways. But I think you're right that Laura Dern's character does have this kind of guilt of like, even though I couldn't do any more to help you, it's fucked up that that's the case. It's fucked up that you are put in this position and it's kind of ruined your life, even though you were not at fault. Um, and I think that that kind of leads to the end when they have their kind of reconciliation and he apologizes for, for being an idiot basically. And is just sort of begging her of like, please write me letters. Like you don't understand how lonely I am it, getting back to that kind of theme of loneliness. And mm-hmm. you know, this, it, that, that kind of part at the end is sort of heartbreaking of him being like, you, it doesn't have to be a tome. Just anything. Talk talk about the weather. It doesn't matter. Um, it surprised me that his character knew the word tome. Yeah, yeah, right. And I think that's part of that is like I think it's implied that after he was arrested, he had some some kind of like physical therapy or something, and so mm-hmm. now he's kind of back to his normal self. Whereas before, you have that scene at the beginning where he looks at the sheet of paper, and it's all blurry, and you're sort of meant to infer that he still has this brain damage going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, I think it's, uh, I'm going to stop talking about him there. Cause I think it's kind of fucked up that this is a film called certain women. And I've spent the whole time talking about one of the only male characters. Well, well, I think there's something to it though, because I think the guilt that Laura Dern's character feels towards him is paralleled by the guilt. Michelle Williams seems to feel about the the old man whose sandstone she wants yeah, Albert and and he sort of tentatively gives to them mm-hmm. and then they just take it and you know they're standing there loading it and she sees him through his big window and waves and smiles and he just walks away um and that's i mean they they return at the end of the film to that story but you never see what you say his name was albert albert yeah yeah you never really see him again you just see the pile of sandstone so it's a little more ambiguous i think in that second story um you know as to what exactly 
uh, Reichardt is saying um, about this particular character. But what what you see in all three stories, I think, are are women, like you said, who are independent, but also uh, their independence can be uh, can lead them into some problematic situations where Laura Dern is sort of working for the man and Michelle Williams in order to be, you know, to, to accomplish this project they're working on is willing to sort of exploit, uh, this old man for his resources, you know? Um, so it's almost like you see them becoming what they had to fight against to be what they are. Mm. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that makes sense. But um, I don't know. In, in all of the, I'm just going to keep harping on this loneliness point, but in, in all of those cases, you still have uh, the kind of ramifications of that is that they end up feeling kind of isolated. It, like mm-hmm. in Laura Dern's case, you have her character alone on the couch with the dog and the dog is like snoring and she's just sort of like hanging out. And then Michelle Williams is, is obviously having trouble with her husband and with her daughter, who's like a teen, a shitty teenager and like doesn't want to talk to her. Um, and then you have, uh, I don't know, I feel like Jamie, that, that whole storyline is a different, you know, horse of a different color because it, it seems to not fall in line as much with the first two. The first two you well, have, you, you certainly have the loneliness theme. Oh, definitely with Jamie, but she's not, she's not like a, you know, self-assured, like competent sort of hardworking. Oh, I mean, she's well, hardworking. Well, I see. I, I think she is all those things, but she is outside of kind of, you know, mainstream definitions of, of success, you know, yeah. whereas, First of all, Kristen Stewart is some sort of lawyer. Laura Dern's a lawyer. And uh, Michelle Williams is whatever she is. She's clearly successful. She's the boss of whatever company it is that she started. Yeah. So, but but you see Jamie as, I mean, she's doing these, she's doing more work, actual work than anyone else. Yeah. Uh, You know, she's, the movie ends with her shoveling horse shit. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you know, and we talked already a little bit about the, uh, the, the repetitiveness and I use that term with a a sort of positive sense of, of it's, it's very sort of, I don't know, it's repetitive, but you don't get the sense that Jamie is, is sort of beaten down by it. It's sort of repetition out of care, out of love for the thing that you're doing as opposed to repetition uh, of like because you have to, to survive, <laughs> I guess, if, if that makes any sense, uh, mm-hmm. cause she's getting paid for it. But at the same time, it comes out through what little bit she says in the movie that this is kind of the one thing she's really passionate about is horses and doing this kind of work and caring for animals and that sort of stuff. And it's very sort of needed and, uh, sort of specialized work that she is able to perform very well. Um, and so. and and you see the you see that, and you see that compared to Kristen Stewart, who her whole, you know, we'd call her a successful, independent, motivated woman, and yet she's 
clearly not uh, as free. She's uh, she's clearly not as free to be herself as Jamie is. Um, and I really kind of feel like Jamie, now that I'm like thinking about it more, is kind of the the moral center of this story. This person who's willing to sacrifice, you know, some sort of worldly success to to do the things she cares about, and then put put herself out there to try to overcome this loneliness that is inherent in that sacrifice. Uh, and, and clearly she's upset at the end, but then she goes back to doing what she loves. And, and I really do think that that metaphor is, is intentional of her. Uh, with the movie ends with her dealing with horse shit. <laughs> yeah. You know, because it, it's, it's funny because she, everything she does in the film is done with utter sincerity. Like there's not an ounce of irony or, or malice in anything that she does really. Like everything is done out of like caring for something else or, you know, wanting to spend time with this Kristen Stewart's character, that sort of thing. And she ends up doing things that are very, what we would call cringeworthy for sure. But it's never done in a threatening way. It's done out of, if anything, it's, it could be described as kind of like desperation but it's not ever given this kind of, you know, uh, threatening feel to it. Like she drives all the way to Livingston to see Kristen Stewart's character. Uh, but when she gets there, she doesn't do anything crazy. She just wants to see her and sort of explain well, to her. But she, uh, see, she does it with a dignity though. Cause, cause the, when she's driving there and kind of wandering around, you're like, this is kind of creepy. Uh, but then she, she approaches her and she, she does it perfectly. Yeah. As perfectly uh, as you can in that situation. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? She, she says she gives Kristen Stewart's character an opportunity to respond and makes it very clear what she means without, you know, sounding like a stalker or some desperate person. And, and when Kristen Stewart does not respond or reciprocate, she, you know, turns around and walks away. Yeah. Um, and so there's this dignity to it. I, I, I mean, it may deep down be some sort of desperation, but, but there's a real, uh, you know, she's in control of herself, uh, unlike a, like a stalker, you know? Yeah. And just the, what, what a, what a fucking power move to ride the horse to the class. Yeah. And be like, let me give you a ride to the diner and then bring a horse around the corner. Let's just, that's cool. That's dope. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good move. Um, <laughs> and it, it's weird. It, it, it's what makes that scene interesting is that Kristen Stewart's character is like okay, and rides the horse, and they go to the diner, and then they ride back, and they have what is sort of, by all accounts, a, a nice experience. Um, but then the response from Jamie is that was really nice. I hope we can do it again. Uh, and then from Kristen Stewart's is, is, sort of perspective is I need to get away from this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like this is, this is weird or this is uncomfortable or whatever it may be. And, and kind of runs from it. Um, it's sort of more, a more cynical kind of fearful kind of uh, take on it. Whereas Jamie is more kind of, 
hopeful and sincere and like you said, like dignified about it because she's not, she's not embarrassed. Yeah. Which is like, that's difficult to not be embarrassed all the time. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting too, that she mentions her job caring for these horses is just a winter job. And you're kind of like, who is she? You know, like what is her normal job? What is her summer job? What is her, what does she do? Where is, is this where she lives all the time? Um, and, and one thing Reichardt seems to often do is kind of leave background, you know, the exposition kind of up to you. Um, there's not a whole lot of backstory in any of these movies. Yeah. But it, speak, speaking of, before I forget, speaking of, you said the word cringeworthy. I wanted to ask you uh, what you thought, because Jensi and I watched Wendy and Lucy, and we both were uh, impacted emotionally when the Walgreens guard sort Gives of secretly hands Wendy the money. And you th- you're thinking there's definitely a $100 bill involved in this, at least. And it's six fucking dollars. That's just that I, is cringeworthy. I don't. To, it's interesting because to me it was like I felt that <laughs> you know, like I, I felt it deep because you get this idea of like you can read it a few different ways. If you read it in the sense of like this is all he's willing to give, or like this is all that all that he thinks she needs, or whatever. That's one thing. I read it as like, this is all that he can spare because he rolls up in a shitty car with his daughter, or whoever she is that he's, that he's taking care of and had to take her kid to school and all that. And he's working this thought, job. Uh, that's his daughter. I thought it was his wife. What? Uh, well, well, whatever. Or like some, I thought maybe it's like his, his lady friend sort of thing. Maybe. And, but you know, he's working this shitty jo- and he's explained to her, like, this is the only job that I could get and it sucks, but they pay me. So, I'm here every day. Um, and I read it as this kind of like almost like a class solidarity thing of like shit's rough out here. I want to help, but this is all that I'm capable of. Um, see, that's I, why I, I, I saw it way differently to me. I, it, to me, it seemed like Reichardt is, is showing how fucked up our sense of generosity is the, because, and, and I think what shows that is, is that he kind of makes a show of it. You know, before he hands it to her, he says, don't let whatever the woman's name in the car is. Don't Don't let her see. It's like, don't argue. Don't tell her. Yeah. And and so in his mind, you know, maybe it's a little bit of both what we're saying, because like you said, in his mind, this is a lot of money Mm -hmm. because why else would he make a show of it? But but if we're honest, $6 is not a lot of money to anyone, even if you're homeless. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they, uh, even if you're homeless, you know, that buys you like a meal at Subway, maybe, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just no way in my mind that that is, uh, that anyone could actually think that that is an appropriate, uh, you know, sum of money to make a show of giving. Like Jensen and I both said, had he, uh, reached into his pocket sort of casually and been like, you know, I don't have much to give you, but here, take what's on me and, and given her $6, it would have been totally different. But he pulls out 
you know, a wad, what we think is a wad of cash and says, don't let her see, uh, but, you know, yeah, but no I think big it, deal. Here you go. And we think it's good. You think it's going to be $200. Well, <laughs> what? I, I didn't think it was going to be 200. I thought maybe I, it'd be I, 20. I thought it was going to at least, I thought there was going to be at least a hundred dollar bill involved. But I think that a part of it, and again, this is just how I'm choosing to look at this is kind of like double bind of, of living during the end times of living during late capitalism <laughs> where you're like, I can't not help this, this girl. Like I can't not help her because then I'm an asshole. But if I do help her, I can only help her this very min- minuscule amount that like doesn't do anything, but, but give me the ability to say that I did something right. And, and so to, to me, I kind of read it that way of like, if he had the choice of at least performatively helping her versus not helping her at all, I would almost prefer him to just like performatively help her. Right. Even though he's not, it's a drop in the bucket and it's not really accomplishing anything. I would prefer that than for him to be like, well, good luck. And then get in the car and leave that sort of thing. Um, yeah. But you know, it's, it, you know, I just really wanted him to be casual about it. I just wanted him to say, uh, here, this oh, is not much, some, but uh, take yeah. take what I've got, you know. But no, he acted like he had a fucking, you know, <laughs> saving grace to offer her. He answered her a roll of hundreds. <laughs> and uh, then <laughs> and then it cuts and she, you know, she goes to the auto repair shop and the car's, you know, uh, she needs $2,000. And she just got a $6 gift. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, man. There's no no good answers. Uh, yeah. And one thing that, that kind of ties all these films together, and there are a lot of themes that she keeps coming back to, like we talked about loneliness and precarity and all these different things that, that link these films. One thing that she talked about in that interview that I thought was really worth mentioning was she talked about how she, she likes exploring these ideas of community and sort of this idea of, of what do we owe to each other? And another way she put it of was the American dream of like, what is this American dream that we talk about and how is it changing and that sort of stuff. Um, and I think all those, all three of those ideas are, are very intricately connected in this idea of, you know, what, what do we really owe to a stranger or to someone that we barely know that sort of idea. Um, and it definitely comes up in Wendy and Lucy in different ways where you have like, even if the security guard only gives her $6, he is a godsend compared to the shithead teenager grocery clerk. Right. Um, for sure. And then the the dude at the garage is sort of like in the middle where he's like not mean, but he's not really offering to help her in any kind of way. Um, and and you see this kind of coming out in, in all the, the movies of like, how do we interact with one another sort of, uh, especially if you think about like certain women, you have that weird family dynamic with Michelle Williams's character where her husband tells the daughter, like, we're going to be nice to your mom today because she works really hard. And I think we should be nice to her. And that has so many layers of like, well, yeah, he would say that cause he's cheating. He's kind of a piece of shit, but also the daughter is a piece of shit cause she's a teenager and the wife is kind of taking everything as an insult to her as a person um, right and and just this just looking at the the complexities of these relationships and that's what one reason i like the storyline with jamie and the Kristen stewart character so much is because it's like 
starting from absolutely nothing and saying, okay, well, how would this relationship develop? Like, what would happen next? How would these individuals react to it? And so you see sort of the birth and the death of a relationship over the course of that storyline. Um, I think uh, hearing you talk about it again, I think there's there's room for synthesis in our in both of our takes on the six dollars and Wendy and Lucy. <laughs> I think it's I think it can at the same time be a suggestion of solidarity that this guy is giving all he can give and that that is a a good thing compared to uh, the other people she is confronted by. Um, and yet the film also might be suggesting that this is what qualifies as generosity is preposterously sad. Yes. I think that kind of hits it on the head. A lot of these, all, all of these movies I would argue are pointing at the fact that all these things that we take as being, you know, that go without saying or whatever, they, they just simply are not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's ex- uh, explicitly kind of uh, almost unrealistically uh, talked about in Old Joy where uh, Mark is talking about giving back to the community <laughs> in sort of cliche terms yeah. and is you know, consoling Kurt because he's not giving back to the community in the same way, you know. Uh, but yeah, I think that is consistent with your idea of Reichardt constantly sort of asking, what do we owe people? What do people owe us? Yeah. And if you hear her talk in these interviews, these recent interviews, she will say things like shit's really bad. Well, she won't say it exactly like that, but but she'll say, you know, "I, I thought things would get better, but they seem to be getting worse. And so in her films, she, I think very effectively presents that without becoming pessimistic about it. Um, so there are, you know, these, these ambiguous endings and they sort of leave you feeling incomplete or whatever, but that's kind of how life is and kind of how the world is at the moment. Right. Of like there, there's a lot of terrible shit, but she kind of leaves the door open for, for hope or for alternative viewpoints to, to get in a little bit more than if she just came at it like you know 90s fincher or something and just like slammed all the windows shut and pulled the blinds yeah i, I we, we were saying this before we started recording but i'm i'm you know i sort of knew about kelly reichardt a little bit i'd we we talked about night moves and i had seen wendy and lucy uh several years ago but after this marathon and I'm going to watch Meek's cut off again. I'm going to watch old joy again. I'm going to watch certain women again. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm on board the Kelly Reichardt bus, uh, or train, I guess would be a more appropriate metaphor given her <laughs> yeah. love of trains. I'm going to hop the but, Kelly Reichardt train. Yeah. She's, uh, wh- what's the, what's the woman's name who directed leave no trace and winter's bone. Do you remember? Oh crap. No, I should know, but whatever, whoever that is, uh, um, Deborah Granick, Deborah Granick. These are two of the, uh, two of my favorite filmmakers, uh, 
going right now. Leave no trace. Uh, you know, we've talked about doing like a, a best of top 10 think, sort of thing. I think, leave when we no get trace to 50, I think 10 more episodes when we get to 50 would be a good time yeah. to do that. Well, spoiler alert, leave no traces on there. And uh, certain women might be on there as well. Yeah. Two very good, uh, lesser known. Well, I mean, if you're like really into movies, you've probably heard of them or familiar with them. But if you're just like the can't wait for the new Star Wars crowd, maybe you haven't. But they're definitely worth checking out. Yeah. Well, and I think, uh, you know, because they are women filmmakers, you know, which is, you know, it's sort of silly that you even have to say women before you say filmmakers. But you have to because there are so few um, getting the attention. And, and even when you make these masterpieces, it's like like you're saying, who's heard of Deborah Granick and Kelly Reichardt? Yeah, like you, maybe you've heard of Winner's Bone because of Jennifer Lawrence, but right. you're not going to remember the director. Yeah. And, and anytime someone says like, oh, there's, there's – plenty of women directors you're like name one they're like Sofia Coppola and then you're like okay name another one yeah. and they can't yep and and I think with with Granick and with Reichardt you have two you know really strong and and still out there working directors I mean we mentioned that Reichardt's new film is going to get a wide release in in uh, March and then uh I don't know what Granick's working on but I'm sure it'll be fucking devastating. Leave No Trace is one of the saddest goddamn movies I've ever seen. Yeah, it has a... Wendy and Lucy has a similar kind of... The ending of Wendy and Lucy has a similar kind of vibe. That kind of feeling of like the necessary but extremely painful separation. Kind of like, Lassie, get out of here. Go on, go girl. That, That kind of thing. Yeah, except instead of the girl's dog, it's her father. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we'll definitely, I think 50th episode we'll do like, I don't know if we want to do it as a ranking or like set it up as like an awards thing of like, we each do like an award, like an Oscar ballot almost like superlatives. Yeah. Like best supporting actress, best director, that sort of stuff. That'd be kind of interesting. Well, if we're if we're going to do that, we should save it for Oscar night or something. Yeah, that could be a possibility. I don't know what that'll Coming be up. like. When it, that'll we? be our one year anniversary because we, I believe, we started on Oscar night, right? Oh, yeah, I think so. So that was that's in February, right? Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. I mean, that that I think that'd be like right before the fiftieth, but that's fine. That'd be really cool. We might look into doing that. Cool. Be cool a, a beans. Good way of doing. <laughs> Neato burrito. I was, so I, I don't know if I told you, I sold my uh, Explorer that I've had for 15 years. And uh, I, just this dude, uh, my friend knew on Facebook, bought it. And I had never met this guy. And he was kind of a an intimidating fellow. He had like tattoos all over his body and like he was really big and like dirty. Like he'd just come from like a construction <laughs> job and just like an intimidating guy. I was a little bit scared. Cause it was like 
pitch black when he came to like test drive the car and I like got in and uh, was riding with him on the test drive. It was a little bit, he was like gunning it to see how, you know, if it like started shaking when you hit 50 or something, which of course it <laughs> doesn't usually. And uh, like I said, I was a little nervous, but then uh, he said, does the uh, AC work? And I said, yes, it does. And he said, cool beans. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm not scared of this dude at all now. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. You're, you're, you're not a threat anymore. Cool. Um, I, that is kind of, I, I love that. Uh, it's a good kind of flip that you went from driving <laughs> an Explorer to, to a Prius. Yeah. Uh, a yeah. pre-owned Prius. Like I'm still jealous that you were able to patch Dude, together such a good deal. I was, I was lucky. Yeah. Um, yeah. if you subtract the, uh, the, uh, price of the Explorer that I got, I mean, I barely put like $1,500 into that Prius, man. That's, that's can't do much better than that. Mm-hmm. Good for everybody involved. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess we're we're done talking about. Let's talk a little more about my Prius. <laughs> uh, it's silver. It's a, uh, although like, were you saying you can drive like something crazy like three hundred miles and like well, not, not well, use when a I, of a when I drove it to Auburn, man, when I drove down there when y'all were moving, uh, I put fifteen dollars in. And fifteen dollars coming back, like, and that's a five-hour drive. Yeah, it cost me thirty dollars to drive to Auburn and back. So, which was, you know, not the case with the Explorer. No, it would have been like to get out of your driveway. In summation, Kelly Reichardt and Priuses. Yeah, it's like things we endorse: Criterion Collection, the Prius, uh, Beaujolais wine. <laughs> Building your own bookcases. Building your own bookcases. Uh, Ryobi tools. <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, What's the thing uh, uh, John Oliver's always endorsing? Uh, ladders? Some kind of DeWalt ladder. ladders. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so that'll, that'll, I'm trying to see if there's anything that I forgot to mention. I think we pretty much covered it all. Um, okay. So next week we're going to switch up a little bit. And this is another one of those weird coincidences that where this movie has a connection to Kelly Riker, which is that, uh, the movie is the last winter from 2006 directed by Larry Fessenden. Uh, it's a horror film, which I think this is the first like outright horror film we've done, unless you want to count mother, which I don't. Um, but Larry Fessenden starred in, Reichert's first film, uh, River of Grass, and he was in Wendy and Lucy as the the creepy guy in the park who like accosts her. Um, and I think he's produced. You said he was a producer on a couple of her movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in those early movies. His own films, he seems to mostly or pretty much only make horror films, and he made what, as far as I know, is the only climate change related horror film which is the last winter. So we'll be watching that talking about it for next week. I'm looking forward to it. I don't really know a whole lot about it. I don't know a damn thing about it and I'm not going to read anything about it before I watch it. 
I think it's going to be a, I think it's going to be a good discussion because with with Rikert stuff, I, I feel like sometimes we have these discussions that if you come into the podcast with a specific frame of mind, you're going to be like, how is that even remotely related to climate change? But as we said before, it, climate change sort of is a wide umbrella under which a lot of things fall. And with Reichert, I think a lot of those things are there, like the difficulty of living in late capitalism, the the sort of need for human connection and the inability or the difficulty in forming it. Um, all those things play a part in trying to deal with this larger existential threat to humanity, that sort of thing. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, we're not going to sit here and, and beat something with the eco stick yeah. to make it to make it spit out something we want. Uh, some movies just do not lend themselves as easily to it. And, and, uh, and like you said, there's, there's issues that are tangential, but related, I and, think. And in a lot of ways, we're like life in the end times. <laughs> yeah. And in a lot of ways we, we kind of have become, have sort of evolved into, more of kind of like a countercultural sort of lens, countercultural sort of opinions on things that yeah. often align with people who are aware of and are trying to do something to try to better understand climate change and, and everything that comes after. But also that includes, you know, all aspects of the society that we have to live in. Sure. Um, but yeah, we'll look at the last winter, which it, I just say all that because the last winter I feel like will be a little bit more on the nose than yeah. the Reichardt films. Um, and one last thing, I, I, I say all that just to justify the inevitable week in which we review uh, Saving Silverman. <laughs> it, it's coming. Uh, <laughs> so we'll, we're doing that next week. Before we uh, wrap up, I want to give a quick shout out to different places. Because I've noticed we've had these listen like repeat listeners from different places. So uh, Iowa specifically, um, Iowa, uh, Iowa, yeah. I've, I've, Is this heaven? <laughs> no, it's uh, Iowa. I've uh, recently met some people, made friends with some people that either are from Iowa or have spent a you know long amount of time in Iowa, and they seem to have enjoyed it. So shout out to people listening in Iowa. We've recently gained some listeners in Canada, which is pretty cool. Uh, we've had listeners in Canada before, but these are new ones, I think. Um, we, we've maintained at least one listener in Israel, so that's cool. I uh, wholeheartedly disagree with the policies of your government, but maybe you're cool, so keep listening. Um, <laughs> and then uh, New Mexico picked up some people there. Hmm. So, you know, if you're one of those people, or if you're anyone listening, tell your friends, tell your family, grab your kids, grab your wife. <laughs> They're talking about every movie out here. <laughs> oh, goodness. Until next time. <laughs> well, until next time. <laughs> I'm on I'm on my hot toddy game tonight, man. I'm on you I don't know if you could hear, but while we were recording, Jensi brought me three refills. Okay. So you've had a fair amount. It's like, what was that episode? What episode was it where you drank like half a bottle of Jameson? Oh, it was uh, it was Captain Fantastic. Yeah, which is weirdly one of our least li- listened to episodes. So go back and and listen to Will get nice and loose talking about Captain uh, Fantastic. I was 
I was fucking drunk, really. And you can tell. You remember we? Because I remember we were laughing about it uh, afterwards. Because I, I remember now. It was I scr- like basically screamed, "Fucking Relian pisses oh. me off." <laughs> yeah. Good times. Yeah. That um, seems like a really long time ago. It was almost a year. Yeah. So uh, stay tuned. Big things coming in the new year. Have a good Christmas. Have a good. Well, I don't know. We'll have another episode before the new year. Is that right? I don't know if it'll be posted by then. Have a happy new year as well. <laughs>